Hello, Valparaiso. This is Allison Schutte. Willow Walsh. And Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening to Welcome Project Radio. The Welcome Project collects first-person stories and pairs them with facilitated conversation to help participants forge stronger ties within and across communities. We vision a world in which people are curious about and actively seek to engage with those who are different from themselves. We are proudly underwritten by Asana Yoga Center and Roots Market Cafe, two great ways to feel good this summer. They're located online at asanacenter.com and rootsmarketcafe.com. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. The music is provided by WVLP's very own Paul Schreiner. Thanks, Paul. Today, we bring you three stories, or two stories, actually, from the Welcome Project's archive titled Kept Quiet and Nodded and Not Something That You Force. And I was actually the one who picked these stories today. Um, I decided to pair them because um, I thought they brought up a sort of interesting dichotomy that's been on my mind, and that's essentially... Having a neighborly ethos, and on the other hand, like having crappy neighbors, I guess, <laughs> or what you would determine to be crappy neighbors. And so, like, essentially, like, how do you sort of hold both of those things at the same time? Like, how do you have like a deep love and empathy for those around you, but also, you know, they make you upset or they have like, I don't know, Trump bumper sticker or something? And it's like, where do you find that in yourself to sort of merge those two things so I thought these two stories would be like a good I don't know get us talking about sort of that experience a timeless topic yes (laughs) no doubt always (laughs) so no further ado or should we yeah let's jump right in okay the first one is titled kept quiet and nodded when I got here I was really really nervous about um trying to figure out what it was going to be like being kind of like a non-religious student on campus. And I did have a roommate who was very religious. She was like the daughter of a pastor, Um, which was like, oh, yikes. (laughs) Lucky for me, she was really cool about it. Um, I think she invited me to church like the first three weeks or so and then just was kind of like, okay. I had more problems, I think, my sophomore year than I did my freshman year with religion. Um, because that was the first year I had to take a theology course, like a required theology course. Uh, and I remember being kind of like cautiously optimistic because up until then my experiences had been pretty positive. Um, but that class went very poorly for me. It was rough. We, uh, we got assigned some writings by, uh, civil disobedience writer um it was really great I loved it it was Jesus and the disinherited and I was really excited I took it home and I read it and it was great it was about how um people who are in minorities feel anger and fear and sadness and how you deal with that and how you deal with being different and it was really cool and I was really excited to to take it in a class and we got in there and here's me and a Hispanic Muslim kid <laughs> and everybody else. And the teacher goes, you know, so what, what were your first thoughts on the reading? And this kid raises his hand. And I'm like, oh, no. And he opens his mouth and he goes, well, I just don't know how we can speak on behalf of all these people. Uh, you know, how are we supposed to just take him at his word that these are things these people go through? And that was when I started to realize that I was in this classroom full of people who just had no idea what it meant to be judged like that. The best thing I could do was just 
just see it as like a very short term thing. You know, it's just a couple of weeks. And it was such a, a, an outlier. It was such a blip on the radar. It was so unusual that that made it a little easier to deal with because it was like, okay, it's just this one class and I'm sure it'll be okay if I can just get through this. So I just had to kind of find strategies for reshaping the assignments. For in class, there wasn't much I could do. Um, I spoke up when I felt like I could. Um, and for the rest of it, I just kind of kept quiet and, and nodded. I didn't want to interfere with other people's learning experiences. If they were enjoying it, then great, you know. This was a class made for them. It wasn't really made for me, and I wasn't there by choice. So I just had to kind of make the best of it. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And you're listening on WVLP 103.1 FM, also streaming live online, wvlp.org. And our normal way of running the show is to play some stories from the Welcome Project archive. All of these stories you can find on our website at welcomeproject.velpo.edu. And then to have some discussion about what do we hear the storytellers um, putting forward about their experience, and then what do we make of that and how it relates maybe to our lives. And Willow, today you wanted to reintroduce the concept of neighbors and in this case we're doing it in a classroom which I love the idea of using that metaphor in the classroom it's interesting for me as a teacher to consider that might be a interesting way to conceive of the classroom space so I don't know uh Reagan do you want to start had you heard this story before and if not did some particular thing stand out I thought I had heard this story before, but no, I think I heard a story uh, from a similar speaker or the same speaker. Yeah, she has a couple on that. Yeah, and I think she's talked about this topic in particular a couple times. Yeah, I don't know. I just, it feels, I also was a non-religious student coming to Valpo. Um, There is a college in my hometown. It's called Grace Brethren, Um, and we joke that it's like footloose. Um, because they, they have a lot of like very strict <laughs> rules, like dancing is still really frowned upon. Like you kind of can't go to dances if you're part of that particular church. Um, you have to sign, like, I don't know what this particular one, uh, institution calls it, but a lot of these Christian institutions call them lifestyle agreements where you agree to like not drink, even if you're over the age of 21 to not like engage in, in premarital sex or to like uh, do anything that might lead somebody to believe that you are engaging in that. Um, if you are gay to not engage in being gay <laughs> during your time at the institution. So I was very like weary of religious institutions. And of course I ended up going to Valpo anyway. So that's how that works out but i just i can very much like relate to what she's saying and the, the grin and bear it of it all mm-hmm. and trying to just be like okay well it, it's this isn't my spot anyway so I, I should just deal and move on like that that is respectful but also not fun yeah willa what do you think about the ner- the nervousness of the student upon arriving on campus how do you yeah, understand I mean, what I she's... had the same experience, and like, I mean, I grew up in Valpo, and so going to Valpo University, and you know, you know, my mom worked there, so it was like a no-brainer for me when I decided to go. But I had the same experience to where I'm like, I didn't think I understood how Lutheran it was before I went. But I, my favorite part of this story is when she was like. Um, talking about her roommate who is the daughter of a pastor and she's like which was like Ugh. <laughs> it's very similar to how I'd react 
how do you how do you understand that that uh just like, like that you have to deal with somebody who's been sort of like conditioned from birth into sort of like Christian ideology, which for me is like really close to like conservative ideology. So to me, that says that like they're a very straight edge person that you're going to, I don't know, have to do a lot of work with in order to like either help them not be that way anymore or just sort of deal with the fact that they're super Christian. I don't know. As a gay person, I don't deal with Christianity very well. (laughs) Well, and I think she talks about later on, there's a a spot in the piece where she talks about, like, I'm in a room full of people who don't know what it means to be judged that Mm -hmm. way. Um, And I don't know if that's true. And I don't even know if the speaker necessarily feels that's true, because that's a very broad statement. But I do feel like there is a very special connotation to, and again, my Midwestern small town girl experience (laughs) of like the kind of judge and like pain that a lot of Christian folks bring to people who are in and out of like the flock, you know, um, based on what they, how appropriate they feel you are acting or if they like you or whatever like that's that's something that i'm also very like cognizant of i don't you grew up in the churches would you say mm-hmm. that was part of your experience the judgment part or the just being hyper vigilant i guess of judgment or potential judgment mm. i mean i think my particular journey would be more complicated than that i, I don't know like when you use the term conditioning and that's one way to think about it. And it certainly <laughs> happens because any culture you're in conditions you. A positive way of thinking about it is like values that are instilled in you. And many of those from my upbringing, I think, f- formed my character in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> then there came a point where that was no longer true or like the kind of faith that was in my hometown church didn't feed me like spiritually in ways that I really wanted or needed. But some of that didn't happen until I got to college. And some of our listeners who are in, you know, familiar with Lutheran church bodies will know that the Missouri Synod is one of the more conservative. And then the ELCA is one of the actually the more liberal. And when I came to Valpo, this was back in the late 80s, early 90s. It was much more of a Lutheran campus than it is now, or when you both were students. I think it's even less Lutheran now than when you both were students, um, which is saying something to our listeners, because I, I should say you all graduated in the last five, six years, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's, you know, the change is happening as the incoming student body changes and becomes less less Lutheran. Uh, anyway, when I was here, like it was, it was a liberal environment for people like me coming from the Missouri Synod. And mm-hmm. like, I felt very much like my faith was challenged on day one in my class where we were reading Genesis and told to think of the fact that there were two creation stories. And I was like that, like what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so not taking the Bible as literal truth was something that came to me through my theology classes. So it's very much in contrast to this particular storyteller. Um, I found theology classes stretching me into directions that I feel like connect me more closely to how this storyteller might herself have felt in those classes. I didn't read Jesus and the Disinherited when I was in college, but 
by the time I was in my junior and senior year doing classes like feminist theology and third world theology, I was getting introduced to liberation theology and just really excited by it. So, um, yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, like a theology class on Valpo's campus could be, she even acknowledges this, right? Um, at the end, she says something about the students that it could serve. I don't, I don't want to interfere with other people's learning experiences if they were enjoying it. Great. You know, Mm -hmm. this was a class made for them. And so I'm interpreting a little bit, but Mm -hmm. imagining that, you know, if I had been my 18 year old self in that class with her, this would have been really stretching me in ways that were exciting. Whereas she's experiencing (laughs) the classroom as a very restrictive space. I don't, I don't know how we got all the way there, <laughs> but the, the roommate's interesting because it took three weeks, but she did stop asking mm-hmm. her to go to church. I thought that's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You're right. That's not too bad. <laughs> Solid, actually. <laughs> you picked up on that quickly enough. Um, I also, in, in that context, it seemed like I'm, I'm uh, hypothesizing, I guess, because this storyteller says later that the the theology class was a, an exception, um, like a blip on the, an outlier, she called Mm -hmm. it. That made me think that like, however long the two were roommates, they managed to just like at least tolerate each other and get on. So, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's true, but I am, I'm extending the story in that direction. Um, can we unpack a little bit more what happened in the classroom then? Like, how do you understand what happened? We don't get a lot about the faculty members, mm. you know, role. All, all they do is pose a question, which is a mm. very typical kind of question, but it goes south very quickly for the storyteller. So Reagan, like, what did you hear in that experience? When I was at Valpo, I took, I was a, a soci- sociology and social work major. So, um, a lot of my classes dealt with very uncomfortable topics because that was that was the nature of what I was doing. And one of the ones, which I loved this class, if you ever, if you go to Valpo, if you go to a different institution, if you have a community college availability and you can take a social stratification mm-hmm. class, please mm-hmm. do. It's so good. Um, however, um, there's a lot of pushing and pulling in those classes, like similar to how you're describing, like your individual, like, um, theology getting kind of pushed and pulled like it's going to happen the same thing in a social stratification class so it just reminded me of so many conversations of the classes that I would take which were mostly sociology or social work majors had a very different like vibe than the ones that were general like like education requirements and this was just like so many conversations in that social stratification class of I read this thing I'm really I have so many thoughts about it I'm excited to have like what I feel is going to be a pushing or a pulling conversation for me. And then realizing like, okay, no, we need to, we need to adjust our expectations. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not the conversation that's going to be had. If this is a conversation I want to have, I need to have it elsewhere because this Mm -hmm. is no longer the space for that. Mm -hmm. How did you know that going into your classroom situation? The way that people would intro I'm also um a big talker so I try to mm-hmm. in case you can't tell um I'm a big talker so I try to not be the first person to say something unless it's been like five minutes of silence so generally speaking you wait 
you see what everybody else is doing. And then when you realize the kinds of questions or concerns that other people are Mm. bringing it up, it's not that somebody's level is bad or lesser than yours. It's that it's different. So like you, just because, um, Willow, like Willow does a lot of graphic design things. Willow could have a much more complicated conversation about graphic design than I can, because she's at a very different, like she is at a much higher level than I am. I don't know the, I know like maybe two things. (laughs) So just by the nature of that and like who is in this room right now, like if Willow wants to have a more complicated conversation, she needs to go talk to Liz. Yeah, I, you know, she can't. I, we, I can. I will listen to her. Like I love her, but like I'm not going to be able to be in depth with her in the way that she wants or needs. So I think it's the same thing mm-hmm. of just like understanding. Like, okay, people are in different places. This is a big topic, especially again when you're looking at the social stratification, or in this case, theology. That's that's huge. Uh, you you know you have to take that step back and be like, okay, so where is this person? Where are the others in here? And do am I the one who needs to step back or am I the one who needs to step forward? Cause that is also the case sometimes of like, okay, I need to challenge this narrative a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. This is listen up. Welcome project radio at WVLP 103.1 FM. And today we're talking about stories that generally think about how we might be neighbors to each other and then challenges and obstacles to that. And we're starting with a classroom story to help kind of think about that theme Willow, I'm wondering, the the storyteller who's going in, like Reagan was noting and comparing to your own experience, Reagan, like, here's a text that has me super excited. I can imagine all the different kinds of things we can talk about here. And then the teacher poses the question, the storyteller says, and this kid raises his hand and I'm like, oh no. Like, how did you, (laughs) I think I know, I think I know what's going on there, but like how are you understanding that oh no Mm -hmm. I mean for me I've had that oh no moment before and I think especially like Reagan like you said in systems of social stratification like that class it's like the dude with like the Nike slip-ons like the white guy like the Chad and he raises his hand like that's an oh no moment for me because you know it's like Chad doesn't have empathy in the way that I do and Chad also probably did not do the reading okay that's true right anyway right (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so, but you were a lot more gracious than I was in that class. Like I got, I got like burnt out very quickly because I was just, I was upset. And I think for me, it's like you were gracious and you were like, that's okay. Like the faculty member in that situation is going to have the conversation with the people that need growth, that don't understand systematic racism or, you know, structuralized injustices. Like, you know, it's like that was at a lower level for me. And so it was like, I don't know. I just didn't tolerate it very well when people were like, well, I Actually, I don't, th- I think they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and like, oh, like I, that wasn't the conversation I was there to have either. Yeah. So I think you just like, you see that person raise their hand. You're like, mm, I know, I know whatever comes out of your mouth is not coming from a mm-hmm. place of deep love and neighborly ethos and empathy. It's come. Yeah. So, and how do we, how do we understand the question that, that this kid poses at least as the storyteller remembers it. Well, I just he, don't know how he can speak on behalf of all these people. How are we supposed to just take him at his word? Like, here's the thing. Like, I when I was reading through this transcript the first time, I read through that question, and I'm like, I think... I don't think that's necessarily a bad question. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, maybe the part that was irritating for the speaker was just maybe in the context of it. Like, it wasn't coming from, like, a general place of 
like curiosity. Maybe there was a little more judgment in the tone, but defensiveness. Yeah. Like, so, but reading through it now, it's like, I just don't know how I can speak on behalf of all these people. How are we supposed to take him at his word that all these, these are all the things that people go through. And that's a fair question. Like, how do we know that the writer who is talking about people's experiences of injustice are true? But at the same time, I think if the faculty member were to say, well, you know, these are his qualifications, or somebody else in the classroom said, well, yep, this, he's worked with these populations before, or he himself has had this experience, and that's what makes him able to write on it. Like, I don't know if that would have, like, sort of given him the answer that he was looking for, but I think it's so interesting in this question in that it, it's like it's a fair question, but because... Like, if I were to hear this question, I would feel the same level of exacerbation that the the speaker does. But, you know, it's like, how do we sort of bridge that? Because it's like, it's not a bad question, but it is irritating to answer. Yeah. I think that part of it is in the these people. Mm. Because that's an automatic kind of yeah. like, I'm separate and apart from yeah. these people. Mm. So there's this sense of it has a like a implied superiority to it mm. certainly has an a difference you're naming a difference which naming difference isn't necessarily problematic but are you doing it in a way that is genuinely curious about the experience of the people who are different than you and then these there's just always something there that smacks of judgment and mm. like a resistance to hearing the stories and I mean, when I think about the facilitated conversations we have around welcome project stories, it would be a kind of, this is not a clarification question because mm-hmm. <laughs> why don't we start with the experiences that are being described before we ask, how does the person who's presenting yeah. these stories to us have the credibility to do that or mm-hmm. the authority to do that? So it's a little tough on that front um yeah well it's clearly like the way the way that you phrased it allison with like the judgment in there with the the these people and like the way that willow was describing like there's clearly like and i would agree there's clearly not like a lot of care going into this question like i think what it really comes down to is like willow's right this isn't a bad question however it's so googleable Mm. like the things the answers to this question like and i am a, i read a lot and like i'm a person who's been like this book is not serving me and i read a lot of nonfiction. like this author i don't feel is coming from a legitimate place i don't feel like this is like the messaging that i need to hear and i don't feel like this is like good information but like before you get to that point you can google the author you can see this person's qualifications it is in- incredibly easy to do there's no reason to not do that so then to have this like big sweeping question questioning who like the, which the professor has gone through these readings and has helped with faculty to pick these readings out mm-hmm. you are questioning your professor you are questioning the author of a piece that is like relatively famous like i haven't read this piece and i've heard of it yeah yeah uh, it's a pretty standard like piece And you are also like, and you are questioning all of these things, not on the basis of, I don't think this goes far enough. I don't think that this is as inclusive as it could be. You're questioning on the basis of not wanting to think. Mm -hmm. And that is difficult. Yeah. I I mean, I 
have a great amount of compassion for faculty members since I <laughs> yeah. am on that end of the, the, the table, the desk in the classroom. But I, I am curious, like, how did the faculty member mm-hmm. respond to this question? Did it just get left there mm-hmm. or did the faculty member try to, you know, like name some of the ways it could actually be approached to be answered and or did the faculty member find a way to challenge the, these people? Um, my assumption, I think based on like the storyteller saying that essentially for the rest of the semester, she just finds a way to get through makes me think that faculty member didn't, or maybe it's not just the faculty member. Maybe it's also the students because faculty can only do so much in terms of like bringing out conversations if the students aren't there ready to have the conversation but it does seem like that one conversation was indicative to her that there's no movement there's no room in this class for the kinds of conversations that she wanted to have so feel for that (laughs) I don't know Willow if you want to say anything in terms of the neighbor concept like how you see this are you thinking of this as an example of someone who wanted to have neighbors and then they weren't there in the class or maybe it's too, maybe it's not worth doing a kind of literal literalization <laughs> of the metaphor. I think for me, when I read through this, it was like it, to me, it felt very similar to my own experience mm-hmm. of like being at Valparaiso University and somewhat being in Valparaiso in general, like you just, if you're at a certain level of caring for people and there's other people who just like couldn't care less if there was homeless people here, it's like, oh, it's their problem. You know, it's just, I don't know. It's like, that's, that's, that's been a very similar feeling for me. But so I think the reason I wanted to bring the story up though is because I don't know. It's like I want to have empathy for people like our friend Chad here, but it makes it really hard. Like, it's just... Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I'm stuck with. It's like, okay, so let's say... And this guy's name probably isn't Chad, but, you know, our question asker in the story here, you know, let's say he goes outside, he goes into the parking lot, and his car doesn't start. I'm thinking, like, okay, I'm walking back to my car. I know I have jumper cables in my car, but I, you just came out of the class with this <laughs> with the guy. I'm like, yeah. Am I gonna am I gonna turn uh-huh. my car around and help him jump his car? Like, I, it gets in the way because it's like because mm. my thinking there would be like, well, he doesn't give a crap about other people's experiences. Mm. Maybe he needs to go through some hardship to understand what it's like to not have help <laughs> and have people don't understand. I don't know, but it's like I don't think that's like a healthy way <laughs> to approach things. But I don't know. I think maybe it also comes down to like how much like coddling do you have to do to people who are unempathetic I don't know Hmm. I don't know it's just it's a it's a thing that goes back and forth in my mind like like just last night I was at the drive-in and one of the things that irritates the heck out of me is when people leave their headlights on and now Hmm. I understand I'm in therapy I am I evaluate my behavior too much so when we go in the drive-in like immediately I'm out of the car I'm looking at the front of the car are the headlights off for sure immediately latch down like the hood thing so it's level so it's not blocking anybody's view I'm just vigilant like that and so it's just like when I look around and I see that other people don't do that it irritates me or like in the middle of the movie your headlights come on and you don't care that irritates me so anyway the person in front of us last night had their headlights on 
I don't know what they were doing, but it was for a very long time. And then at the end of the first movie, their car had died and they needed a jump. <laughs> and I heard, but I heard like a few rows back, there was a car. Cause you know, everybody else behind that person is, you know, paying the price for those headlights being yeah. on. And so the person like way back was like, Oh, serves you right. <laughs> like they screamed that from way back there. And I'm like, oh. So when, when you heard it out of somebody else's mouth... It didn't like, feel good. It's like, <laughs> okay, I don't want to be that guy, right? Like, that, I don't stand by that. Oh, uh, yeah. It, it, isn't, it isn't easy being neighbors. <laughs> it's really not. And I, just, and I think it's sometimes it's easier, because, right, it's like the drive-in. I wouldn't have really lost anything. It's like, I'm fine. You know, it's like I could have gone over there, and I could have found it within myself to be like, I don't know, maybe she's got a bunch of kids. Maybe like, you know, I don't know, like she's just she's doing her best. She didn't notice like she's just trying. And like I could have worked it out of my mind and been like, it's okay. People don't need to be as hyper aware of their headlights as I am. Maybe I can just go and have like I could I can I can go through those motions and get myself to that place. But I don't know. It's just it's hard on other times. You know, it's like I don't know if there's a dude with a Trump bumper sticker in a pickup truck that passes me on Lincoln Way because I'm going 25 miles an hour and like, oh, and then he like, I don't know. What if he like hits a lamp pole or something? Am I going to like stop my car and get out and be like, are you OK? Like, mm. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> like where that line is because I think like ideally I would be a very empathetic understanding person all the time and I'd be so gracious to everybody and always be willing to help no matter where they're at but I think reality wise it just doesn't really work that way well we can't ignore our reactions that's true but they don't also have to be the last word but that's true this is WVLPLP at 103.1 FM in Valparaiso, community-supported radio, also streaming live from WVLP.org. We rely on donations from individuals, businesses, and other organizations in order to continue to spread the word that ongoing, volunteer-driven local media leads to a better community. Please consider supporting the station by visiting our website, WVLP.org support. Donations are tax deductible, and we'd sure appreciate it. And you're here with me, Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. Today on Listen Up, we've been discussing some barriers to being neighbors, to connecting with one another. How do we react and respond when our expectations aren't met or we feel like we're not going to be included in a conversation and I do we want to go ahead and play our second story here at the top of the hour and this will take us more into the neighborhood um, but that doesn't mean we can't point back to mm-hmm. this other story too do you want to just set it up yeah this one is titled not something that you force a uh, good neighbor is someone who uh assumes responsibility for you. The example I can give is Wayne. Wayne is a a white, older guy that went to Vietnam, and basically he's a recluse. Wayne came to me one day and he says, well, I see you like to garden. So Wayne says, well, I got some of these tomato steaks, you know, trellises, just a little thing. So Wayne said, here, you can have it. And then he go on and he's gruffy. He smells like uh, Marlboros and bourbon and, you know, and then I see him trying to get his clothes 
to the laundry. So I said, Wayne, I'll give you a ride. You know, I'll drop you off. So we speak to each other now and then. But we, it's not like we stopping and talking over the fence and stuff like that because that ain't the kind of guy Wayne is. But I, I barbecue on a pretty regular basis during the summer. So I, say, I asked Wayne when I see him, I said, man, you want a plate? And he said, yeah, if you want to give me one, you know, because he, you know, rarely cooking for himself. So I got into the habit of giving him a little plate of food. And so we become neighbors, you know, and that's kind of how I think neighbors are. You know, you you learn how to trust each other. You learn to assume responsibility for each other. You develop relationships. It's not something that you force. It's something that happens in the course of time as you begin to learn each other and respect each other and, you know, feel familiar with one another. You know, I still understand that people need caring for. And so you got to care for folks. There's some people in the Valparaiso community that don't nobody care about. Always have been. You know, as long as I've been here, there's been groups of people here that folks can't see. But they're there. They're real. They're just people. They're just trying to survive. Some are white. Some are black. Some are Hispanic. Most of them are scared. Most of them don't have anybody to depend on. For example, people don't know how intimidating the university is. There are some people who are so intimidated by the university, they walk around the university. It, it would be easier for them to just walk through, but they are so scared of the university. They're so intimidated by the university. They say, well, I'm going to go through there. So, well, why not? So they just don't want to do that. I said, well, they're just people. No, that's not how they act. So a better question is, how good is the university as a neighbor to people who they often don't see? How good a neighbor are we to folks who are not as smart as we are? But then, then you know, that's that old socialism in me that stands up and says, oh, I'm not sure these places do what they proclaim that they say they do. I have real issues with that. This is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio with Allison Schutte, Willow Walsh, and Reagan Skaggs. And today um, we are talking about neighbors um, and maybe some, well, in this case, we have some really good examples to work with of what can be possible as well as some potential obstacles. And I think when we get to the second part of the story, it'll be interesting to consider like when we're talking about an institution as opposed to a person, like how does that change the dynamics of neighborliness? Um, I'm going to start with you again, Reagan. How did you hear the storyteller saying that, that he and Wayne became neighbors? That is the relationship that like every when I lived with my mom, we had with like every neighbor. <laughs> nice, that's great. Which is like nice. Um, also curious, then how did that get formed in your, you know, backyard? But what do you see this storyteller I mean, saying? He's right, and he should say it first of all. Uh, <laughs> and second of all, um, it's very much just like a. So what it means to be a good neighbor is like you don't and what it means to be a good ally, what it means to be a good um, activist, what it means to be a good like whatever you want, honestly, in place of this is like so much of it is just 
talking to people. I think people think that it needs to be like friends, like very close friends or like people that, you know, very intimately or that you could, um, like you would sign, you would co-sign a loan for this person. Mm. No, no, it does not have to be that deep. Like, honestly, like just caring about somebody and just taking the time to talk to somebody for two minutes is so much. However, also like the speaker and i'm pretty sure i know who the speaker is um but the speaker does discuss like like the or the way that the speaker goes about it is like there is a, a way that you need to prioritize being a good neighbor hmm, so what it, yeah like what it means to be a good neighbor to somebody who is already like affluent already socially well connected for whatever reason like if they're a part of like the social institutions that are like well-regarded and well-treated in the community. What it means to be a good neighbor to them is very different from somebody who is, uh, to be a good neighbor to somebody who like has more needs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like there is, and there should be like a sense of not that you shouldn't be a good neighbor to the people who, who quote unquote need you less or could potentially need something that you have less, but that if this is something that you are very passionate about, like you should maybe try to prioritize people that you know aren't being prioritized. And I think that's just institutional and like at an individual level, generally a good mindset. I see what you're saying. So like you're hearing this storyteller be very cognizant that the neighbor is the one in need and who might be unseen or bearing a more difficult load. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to be a good neighbor too, we ought to be aware of those, that set of needs that's out there. I was struck by, I think this is maybe related, but the fact that the storyteller understands and respects the person and boundaries. I don't mm -hmm. know if boundaries is the right word of Wayne. Mm -hmm. Wayne is not somebody that wants to stand over the fence and gab for 20 minutes. Right. But Wayne is somebody who will take a plate. I hadn't really thought about that before, that to be a good neighbor is to also pay attention to and then acknowledge and then honor how that person wants to be known and engaged. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool, too. My sense for me, like if my neighbor was Wayne and I had never met him before and I just saw him out there, I would make a lot of assumptions about him yeah. as like an older, gruffy white guy who smells like Marlboro's bourbon and what have you. And I would assume that like, oh, if I talk to Wayne, Wayne's going to tell me like, oh, have you ever tried being with a man or something? You know, it's just <laughs> like there's like a specific demographic. And so it's just like, so I think there's something there too to sort of like challenge that initial perception that you have and just reach out regardless and kind of see how it goes. Because, you know, the speaker could have, you know, reached out and said, like, oh, hey, do you want a plate or something? And, you know, Wayne's like, oh, I don't take plates from you. You know, it's like that, you know, and then I think that would tell you a lot. But I think there's something really important about that initial reach out, like just sort of testing the water mm. and creating that relationship. That's what I learned a lot from this story. Yeah, and I think the storyteller is very clear that this is a process, right? He mm. says, you learn how to trust each other and it's not something you force it happens in the course of time and then he says again as you begin to learn each other and respect each other mm -hmm. so I think there are 
situations in which you learn someone that you realize they are not going to be respecting me. Mm -hmm. And then that means I have a different kind of boundary with them, which might be a complete obstacle to being the kind of neighbor I would prefer to be, but I don't need to extend myself if I'm not going to be met with respect. Mm-hmm. Right. I love that he says we've become neighbors. Yes. I thought that was super important. Oh, too. I love that. Yeah. Cause I think it's like, you would just think like, Oh, well we live next to each other. We're neighbors, but the speaker is saying we've become neighbors. Like there are, there are steps that you've cultivated that relationship. I don't know. I love that. Well, it also acknowledges that you won't necessarily be neighbors with all the people that you live around because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe you won't become neighbors. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's like the most important thing to kind of acknowledge. And I think you touched on this specifically with our last story, Willow, is like empathy is so vital. And especially when we're talking about building a community and maintaining a community, like having a basic care and love and empathy for as many types of people as possible is is vital. It is necessary. But also like what with what Allison is saying, like those boundaries are also incredibly vital. Like you are one person. You shouldn't expect like to be able to build a whole community by yourself because by nature of the thing, it mm-hmm. is a group of people coming together. Um, and I think that like a lot of people kind of take that on maybe. And then they become burnt out very quickly of like, well, I tried to do X, Y, and Z and it didn't work. It's like, okay, but you know, there's also maybe a little bit of ego in that. And like the understanding of like community as a collaborative process means that you can't collaborate with everybody Mm. and that is okay. Mm. I feel like that's so important to learn. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, just going back to the classroom and thinking of it as a, as a teacher, you know, wanting my classrooms to be community spaces. Mm -hmm. When I first started teaching, like that was just, my pedagogy. And I would lead with that if I was ever talking to people about the kind of classrooms I have or would want to have. And that's how I would pitch myself to my students. And I think it's taken me 17 years. That's what I've, that's how long I've been teaching at Valpo, at least to realize like not everybody wants to be a part of a community or feels like given the conditions of that particular classroom, whether that's big external conditions like COVID, or if it's like very intimate conditions, like just the specific bodies that end up in that classroom, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't always participate in a community way. Like you might just not be able to do that. And that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. It does mean that the exchange of people that happens in a classroom or on a block will be different, but it's a dynamic that's based on the people who are there. So you have to allow for that. Uh, this goes back to our fixing healing conversation from, I think it was like two times ago now, right? So that would have been a month ago where, yeah, you can't fix things the way you want them. Like you really have to allow for the dynamic of whoever is there in that particular time and place. And that can be really humbling (laughs) (laughs) if it's not how you would hope it would be like Mm. at the drive-in, you know? (laughs) So, and I think the not forcing is also really relevant though. I do like, I found myself wondering when you were talking about the drive-in willow, like 
did anybody think to go up to that car and just be like, Hey, did you know your headlights are on? And mm-hmm. not that mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. always capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Cause I kind of have assumptions that somebody who has their headlights on is going to be aggressive or something like that. So like, uh, they're not going to be willing to just answer that question, but it did make me wonder since the battery died too, like, did they really, were they fully self-aware and could that have been a neighborly act that preceded Mm -hmm. like the, then they leave them on and then, you know, they're jerks, you know? Um, and then the guy in the back who says, yeah, you deserve that (laughs) might be right. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, this is WVLPLP 103.1 FM, also streaming online at WVLP.org. And I'm Allison Schutte with Willow Walsh and Reagan Skaggs. And this is Listen Up, Welcome Project Radio. And we've been playing two stories from our archive today that have to do with neighborliness. I don't know if it's time yet. We can stay with, with Wayne and the storyteller if we want. But I am thinking about the second part of the story and the university. First of all, I think I would love to just kind of talk through what it might mean that people are intimidated to go onto campus. Like, what do you hear in that part of the story? How can we unpack that a little bit, maybe for listeners who might be surprised by that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I grew up here. And my mom worked at the university. And I still, I had not gone on the university in it really until like I was there going to school like I know my friend and I went one day and like sat under the tree and we're like oh my gosh are we supposed to be here like Like, as high school yeah yeah like on the campus and so it is it's like it's it's confusing too and the roads are confusing and I think just like everything about the university space and where it is just says if you don't get it please don't come in here Mm. it is a bubble and I mean and I've been on both sides of that bubble now like before going to college it's just like yeah it's the university it's like its own separate thing we don't go over there you know we go around it we don't go through it um so that makes a lot of sense to me and but I'm also coming from the demographic where you know it's like my dad's college educated my mom worked there it's just like and I'm white it's a majority white campus you know it's just like there were a lot of things going for me that should have made me feel a little more comfortable Mm -hmm. being there but yeah I still felt uncomfortable so I can imagine that people who don't line up demographically and like the certain like socioeconomic status that you have to be at in order to go to Valpo, like why you would not feel comfortable going through the campus. That doesn't surprise me. Hmm. Do you have anything to add to that, Reagan? I would say that when I was at Valpo, people, uh, most people weren't outright hostile to people that like, quote unquote, clearly shouldn't have been there. But people didn't react exactly well to people that quote unquote should not have been there. And I, I personally feel like the university is also a public space. Uh, Valpo University from last time I heard was the, is the largest like landowner um, in this community or one of the largest landowners in the community. Um, you'd have to work real hard to avoid all of the spaces that Valparaiso mm-hmm. University owns. Um, and a lot of those spaces are what I would deem public, even though it's private property, but I, you all know what I mean. But, you know, I just remember several instances of people who clearly were not students and did not appear to be parents of students or family members of students being on campus, just walking through and hearing like comments that I feel were inappropriate from like fellow students. Um, I remember like there was a homeless individual who had been sleeping by the chapel and instead of like you know, doing any kind of outreach, like the protocol was to call the police on this person. So I mean, there, there's a lot of basis there for that, that fear that I mean, again, and I haven't been 
consistently on Valparaiso campus since 2020. So it, it could be very different, but that was my experience going there. And I am not from this community. If yeah. that's relevant. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, worth noting for people who maybe don't know that we now have the homeless Jesus sculpture on campus mm-hmm. and, <laughs> That to me would signal that this is an institution that would welcome the stranger. Mm-hmm. And yet this storyteller, at least for the people that he knows, um, knows that that is not the case, that this stranger, quote unquote, won't feel comfortable. So they'll go out of their way to avoid it. Yeah, I think that's that's very interesting. Like, um, and I don't know if this goes to an earlier comment you made Willow about the like ideals we have of being neighbors. And just speaking for myself, I know it's easy to have the ideal and then it's humbling to realize that sometimes it's hard to live that ideal. Um, but an institution, like I hear this storyteller saying that they have a different kind of responsibility and I wonder if you agree with that, like, because earlier the storyteller says you can't force being neighbors between individuals. Um, you just don't know if any or both people will be able to show up for each other. But here he seems to indicate, like, actually, the university needs to step up, which sounds to me like a kind of forcefulness, you know, <laughs> like how good is the university as a neighbor to people who they don't see how good a neighbor are we to folks who we feel like he says not as smart. I can hear the sort of mm-hmm. scare quotes in his fingers, but it could be anything else. Like you just don't belong here who aren't students here, who aren't staff here, who aren't faculty here. Uh, I mean, we're embedded in a neighborhood hilltop. So the boundary, like why is that boundary? So clear cut to mm-hmm. residents, but anyway, so he seems to say that the, the institution has a responsibility to do work. Mm -hmm. And that feels different than what he was saying about individuals. But I wonder if you agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because with with being an institution comes institutional power. You are the big they that people are talking about when they're like, oh, well, they won't let that happen. Like, that is a huge responsibility. And I understand that it's a university, but like, so like Valpo, something that has, I've been thinking about and that's been bothering me is that there's no warming center in Valparaiso. There's mm-hmm. a fair amount of homeless people here. Mm-hmm. There's a fair amount of very low income people. We have no place for people who are cold in the winter in a place that gets deadly cold in the winter to come and get warm and like spend some time hassle free. There is, you can kind of, you can go to the library for that, but the library has very limited hours. A lot of homeless people are working homeless people. They don't always have time to go to the library. That is that is a service that I feel is very much needed in our community. And it would be so easy for Valpo to have, like, or to keep one of their buildings open and heated and just in the wintertime be like, yes, this is a warming station. There is no such thing as loitering in this area. Mm. It would be very, very easy to do. It would be very, very easy to accomplish. And I can't do that as an individual. Mm -hmm. I don't own property in town. Mm -hmm. I don't even technically live in Valpo. I live in Hebron. Like, I don't have the space to do that, even if I did have property in town. Um, And it's not like 
the best idea for me to just have random people that I don't know coming in and out at all times of night in the house. However, like an institution has the power and the, the availability to do something along those lines. And we are like, as a society, because we build communities very reliant on institutions. So if you have the power within an institution, like there is a, there's a little bit more onus on you to get some stuff done. And I think that's appropriate. Yeah, I think that's a really good concrete example of a way that the university could demonstrate neighborliness mm-hmm. that might start to break down some of those those barriers. Willow, do you have thoughts on this idea of how institutions are different in their responsibility towards residents? Yeah, no, I completely agree. Like the institution view has more agency than just like one person. And so the onus is on them to do something. And I don't know, it's just like it's not as somebody who's like, you know, now working at an organization to where it's like sort of my job to try to get the word out about events and things and like, you know, show that after construction, the preserve is open. You know, it's like there's really a lot you can do to make it feel more welcoming. It's like, you know, it's like you can sort of host community I know I know they've done this in the past but you know continue to host community conversations or do like um sort of like a block party a community block party maybe just a little bit into the campus so it feels a little you know safer um you know have open parking during those events so people feel comfortable like oh am I might you know gonna get a ticket like you're trying to to solve all these counter things that people might feel uncomfortable walking into this space Um, But, you know, it's just like there are ways that the university can invite the community onto campus, can publicize it heavily, and then just show people, you know, the amenities that are available to the community and not just students. And, you know, because it's like, do you know what the university stance is like about people coming in? It's like, I, I don't. I mean, it's like, I guess people are sort of allowed to go in, but it's like, the university is also missing that voice that's talking to the community too. It's just like, oh, okay, where you know, where do we stand? Are is the community welcome here? Do you want people here? You know, you have to clarify those things, and you have to sort of put that out there for people and market that and hold events there. And you know, it's like there are a lot of ways that the university can be more welcoming. And just sitting there and being like, well, we're welcoming, but we're just going to sit here and not tell anybody about it. You know, it's like that doesn't help anything. <laughs> it's like it's still going on. And I wouldn't even say it's for because I would say that in this story, our speaker held out a plate to Wayne and said, you want to, you know, you want a plate of food? It's like, that doesn't feel forced. That feels like taking the first step. And so I think mm. the university has the responsibility to take the first step and hold out a plate of food, host a community event, host a block party, a yard sale or something, you know, have something mm. where you are inviting people more onto the campus and they'll feel a lot more comfortable coming there. Especially the folks from that hilltop neighborhood, yeah. especially them. Yeah. And, and it's that's like definitely the starting point. Cause mm-hmm. that's where we are as mm-hmm. a, as a university. And it's like, they want to, you want to break down this bubble. You have to pop it. You can't just be like, go to work every day and be like, Oh, well, the bubble's still there. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to get rid of it. It's like, yeah, there's a, like a list of things you could do to get rid of the bubble. It's like people feel uncomfortable going there. There are, there are steps the university can take instead of just accepting things the way they are and acting like their hands are tied when it's like, you have a lot more pull, I think. Yeah, my experience is that the university is not very outward facing. Mm-hmm. Like even the town and gown committee that is supposed to connect university to city, it's really thinking about mutual benefit between yeah. city hall and admin at 
the university as opposed to outward facing towards neighborhoods and and thinking of yourself as a located place that is geographically rooted and therefore interesting to think about. It's a little frustrating because the servant leadership has been reanimated as a term for our students on campus. And some of the stuff we're talking about would be great understanding of servant leadership, but I feel like it's more presented to students as like, you'll be a leader of a student organization and then you'll go out and do an event Mm -hmm. as opposed to like really integrating and connecting you to a dynamic kind of community that you become a part of Mm -hmm. and figure out how to participate in. We are at the end of our time (laughs) for today. And um, before we head out, we do uh, urge you to check WVLP's full schedule at WVLP.org. And we highly recommend Morning Black, which airs live every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And then again, Thursdays at 2 and Fridays at 9. Morning Black. Black stands for Building Leaders and Cultural Knowledge, and it focuses on the concerns and issues that impact underrepresented communities of color, specifically African-American communities here in Northwest Indiana. So their discussions of um, issues and problems that inhibit equality and justice are always timely. So we urge you to check them out. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to our sponsors, Asana Yoga Center at asanacenter.com and Roots Market Cafe at rootsmarketcafe.com. Both are also open for business at their locations downtown on Lincoln Way. Visit their websites to learn more. We here at Welcome Project Radio love to support our local businesses. And thanks to Kelly and Michael Marakna, who believe in supporting diversity, learning, and growth. You can find us online at welcomeproject.valpo.edu and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to support WVLP and our show, you can make a donation by going to wblp.org support.